go to Romans chapter 1. Let me read to you verses 1 through 4. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, I want to point something out to you. In the New King James, if you're looking at it, it's going to say, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're looking at, for example, the ESV and most other translations, it's going to say, concerning His Son, and then at the end of all that's written, it's going to say, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's kind of an interesting thing to take note of. I want you to see that, and I'm going to speak to that after we read the Scripture. Let me start with uh, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, let me read it to you in the ESV, and actually, this probably reflects the structure of the sentence in the Greek better. Concerning his Son who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Paul is basically introducing himself. It is the longest introduction that you'll find that Paul makes of himself in any of his letters. In his introduction of himself, he speaks about the fact that that as a slave of Jesus Christ and as a called apostle, he has been separated out for the sake of promoting or preaching or declaring the gospel of God. And we spoke about this last week, that it's the gospel of God because God has purposed it and God has planned it and God has promised it. And because this triune God has executed the gospel and brought it about, and it is the gospel of God because the rescue of ourselves from our sins and from death and the restoration of us into reconciled relationship with God is good news to God. And we said last week, to understand the idea of good news, you have to understand it not simply as a concept that it's news that's positive, but that it has an impact upon your emotional state. That when you hear it and you comprehend it as good news, it fills you with gladness and relief and with joy. And we looked at a bit of the etymology of the word. We said that the word represented the idea of a city-state that was under attack by another city-state. And the citizens of that city-state send out their army to meet on the field of battle, the advancing army that's coming against them. And everything is up to whether their army will succeed and defeat the advancing army against them. If their army loses, then they lose everything. They lose their property, they lose their freedom, they very well could lose their lives. If the army wins, then they're secure and they're safe and the battle is fought and their army prevails. And their army sends back a runner to come into the city to announce that the battle has been fought on their behalf and has been won and they're free. And that runner is an evangelist, in a sense, according to the language. He is an uangelos. And the message that he proclaims that the battle has been won, that has been fought on their behalf, and they're free, is the uangelion. It's the message of evangelism. It's the gospel message that's proclaimed to them. And when they receive that message, you can only imagine that it's not just news that's positive. It's very, 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 very good news. It strikes them with joy and gladness and relief. 
What we said last week is, if there is a message that's brought to you that purports to be the good news, and having comprehended it and understood it, it doesn't produce in you that kind of gladness and that kind of relief and that kind of joy. It's because it's not the good news. It's not the gospel of God. The other thing we said is when you have an individual and you proclaim to them the gospel of God as it's set forward in God's word and they don't experience that joy and that sense of relief in hearing it, then they haven't comprehended it. They haven't understood it. You can tell when the Spirit of God opens the heart of an individual to receive and believe and understand this gospel because they're overwhelmed with relief and joy and gladness. Collapse in tears of joy and gratitude at the knowledge and the understanding of those things. One of the wonderful experiences I've had, one of the habits I have oftentimes is to get with individuals and have them tell me the story of their conversion and what led up to it and what was happening in their life and the moment at which they came and realized what Christ had done for them and they embraced by faith the reality of His saving work on their behalf. As they tell the story, their, their story is full of this emotional punch when that moment is realized and gathered in. And that's the gospel. And it's good news to God because God delights in saving us. And so now Paul adds to this idea that he is set apart for the gospel of God, and he adds to this good news, this information to us. This good news is concerning his son. The word there in the Greek basically means all about, encircling the son. And with this statement, Paul opens up all of scripture to us. He tells us now that what he is about to write what Peter writes, what James writes, what Jude writes, what John and Mark and Matthew and Luke write is all about a delineation of the good news of God regarding or concerning or about Jesus Christ. Everything they say, everything they communicate is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in pointing out this, tells us and makes this point that the world religions can go along quite well in their tenets. Once the tenets are out there, once you understand what they decree to be, the faith that are the ideas or the truths that men ought to embrace, once they're understood, they can all get along quite well without their founders. Buddhism can get along fine without the Buddha, and Confucianism can get along fine without Confucius, and Mohammedism can sustain itself without Muhammad. It actually can in what it teaches. But... Christianity is nothing without Christ. Nothing without Christ. It has no ruling principle to assert, but that which rises out of the gospel, and there is no gospel without Jesus Christ. The gospel is all about Him and His saving work on our behalf. Paul is actually, in a sense, by giving this introduction, he's directing the attention of those he's writing to, the Romans, to what it is he's going to write to them because he's going to declare to them and this whole book basically is going to be this delineation and this pronouncement of this good news and how it will impact their life and how it's to be lived out in obedient faith by them. And, and he's telling them it's all about Jesus. But in verse 2, Paul is also letting them know that this gospel is ultimately all about everything that was written in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. The prophetic word of those scriptures, the way they were pronounced, all that is to be understood and gathered by them, the whole weight of them bearing in upon that present hour and the present moment, all of them are about Jesus Christ. And that would have been understood by those who are reading this. 
you would begin to understand why it is that the Jews of this time were not particularly happy with the early church, this new Christian offshoot that has taken off from their faith. Because all of their traditions and all of their teachings and all of their customs of sacrifice and temple worship and all of their sacred prophecies and promises for their nation and for the future of the world, all of its anticipation for their Messiah and all of its wisdom and all the spiritual benefit that they think they draw from these holy scriptures to their mind is being hijacked by Paul and the apostles being channeled with a focus upon one person, Jesus of Nazareth. imagine that they were quite resentful and jealous of such a notion and when they recognize that still today still are jealous and resentful of such a notion and to this we Christians plead guilty we lay claim not only to the New Testament but to all the writings of the Old Testament we treasure these as the scriptural accounts of God's preparing history directing all people into his salvation into his good news and that good news is all about Jesus Christ. Now Paul is going to identify and give us somewhat of the stages in the revelation of Jesus Christ and following the stages of the revelation of Jesus Christ, how in a sense they impact us in the gospel. And oddly enough, if you look at this, you can see that these stages are represented in the whole book and the order of the book of Romans. We won't go into that, but maybe we will in the future. These stages are kind of introduced by these very names that the Lord Jesus referred to. First, he says, concerning his son. There's a name, his son. And then the next phrase is after he basically gives an expression of the fact that he's born out of the seed of David as to his human birth, we can apply to that Jesus Christ, the name Jesus Christ. Jesus, by the way, wasn't always known as Jesus. He was eternally the son, but he wasn't eternally Jesus. That was the human name that was given to him at his birth. And he came to earth to be the anointed one, the Messiah to enter into and carry out a historical reality. And so this phrase, of the lineage of David, we might attach to that the name Jesus Christ. And then when he speaks of his resurrection and his exaltation, we can attach to this, our Lord, our Lord. Those names align with the thought progression that Paul is going to have in what he's going to say here and reveal to us. And so for us to appreciate what Paul is saying in this passage, and particularly in verses 3 and 4, we have to kind of retrace these words in an almost chronological sequence of revelation. We have to see that each step sets light upon who Jesus was, is, and has become, and will forever be, and our engagement or our experience of him along that progression. So here's the first thing I simply want us to see here in this phrase concerning his son, his son. And it's this. We start with the eternal son. We start with the second person of the Trinity. There is in the Old Testament a sense in which God called the various kings that were anointed over Israel the Son of God or His Son. And there's a measure in which we can understand it that way. But when Paul is writing here and he's introducing this phrase for the first time, he's bringing to the Romans, he's writing to the broadest, most expansive idea of what is behind this phrase, His Son. And in this he's speaking of Jesus as that eternal second person of the Trinity. He will be born of the seed of David. He will be magnified as the Son of God in power at the resurrection. But before all of this took place, he existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit as the Son of God. And that's what Paul is referring to here. Paul is 
only bringing forward what the Lord Jesus himself has expressed of his own preexistence before he became Jesus of Nazareth. Take your Bibles to John chapter 17. Let's look at what is called the high priestly prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed before he was betrayed and went to the cross for us. John 17, I'm just going to read you verses 1 through 5. You will see here that there is a full comprehension on the part of the Lord Jesus that he preexisted one with God throughout all eternity. The Lord Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In John chapter 14, just prior to this, Philip will say in verses 8 and 10, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us after all that he had seen from the life of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus responds to Philip and says to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? It's interesting that the disciples had a hard time comprehending that all through this time, Christ was granting or equating himself as one with the Father, equal with the eternal God, but the Jews understood that, and they began to understand that early on. There was that occasion in which they confronted the Lord Jesus because he healed an individual on the Sabbath, and they were confronting him, and the Lord Jesus said, listen, I'm only doing what my Father does. My Father works, and I work. You find it in John chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. Listen to these words. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. In other words, all the activity of God, all the divine activity of God, I've been engaged in that activity from the beginning. All the time in which God has been at work, I have been at work, he says. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also he said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. So when Paul writes concerning his son, again, Paul is giving to the Romans the highest and broadest understanding of who Jesus of Nazareth is. And if you want to find a passage in Romans where Paul, in a sense, breaks forth in the fullest declaration of this, you can just write down Romans 9.5. There, Paul talks about his prayer for the Jewish people and he lists a number of the benefits that align or come to the Jewish people, the Israelite people. And he asserts that from the Jews, we receive all the witness of the fathers, but also from the Jews rose up the anointed one, the Christ, by the flesh. He says this in verses 5, of whom are the fathers and from whom, from the Israelites, according to flesh, Christ came, the Messiah, the anointed one came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. What a bold statement. In Titus chapter 2.13, Paul says it in a different way. He says that we're to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so of the Son, we say that He's God. He's not a part of God. He's not a third of God. He's God. He's all God. He's very God of very God. Now I put into our bulletin the Athanasian Creed. And last week we spoke a little bit about the Trinity. I was thinking about this. I think sometimes we hear these statements and these declarations and we don't even explore them at some point in time. We just assume them. We forget the mystery behind them. We do this as adults. We do as adults what little children wouldn't do. You know, little children, when you might mention to them that God is three in one, they inquire a little further. You've got to come up with some examples for them. That's how we get in trouble because our examples are not always actually theologically entirely accurate, but we're trying to speak to their mind. I, I mentioned that I found the baby book that my mother had written in. I was impressed because I'm number four and she actually had quite a bit of information in there. My wife was number eight and she doesn't even show up in the family pictures until she's about nine or ten. I'm there and there's some information and, and in it there's an account of a debate that I had with my mother when I was about three years old and the debate was on how God could get everywhere. As a little child I was trying to figure out this concept of omnipresence. My mother told me, well, it's a mystery you won't understand until you get to heaven. It's like you can read it in my baby book. This is accurate. But it's too hard for you to understand, Joel, but when you get to heaven, you'll discover God is a spirit, and God will explain it to you then, but it's too hard for you to understand now. And I said, no, I think I understand. I think he breaks himself up in little bitty pieces. <laughs> but at least a little child is trying to figure these things out. He's exploring these things. He doesn't just take them at face value and well, there's a reward in that. It's how our theology was developed. We should think about these things. The triune God, Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Athanasian, dealing with the suggestion that Jesus was not divine, countered it with this decree, this statement that was written down probably after he died, but it records his ideas, his thoughts. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords. There is but one Lord. It is before this triune God of eternal majesty that we come before first. And this is where we start with the Son, His Son. It speaks of His divinity. Here is, in a sense, the second stage. Jesus Christ, I said that was His earthly name that was given to Him. Christ, Him coming to earth to fulfill the role as Messiah or Anointed One. And 
here we see the stage where the second person of the Trinity is born of the lineage of David becoming a man. This is the stage of the son's humiliation. Jesus is the human name that was given to the Son of God, as we have already said. But here is the mystery. The pre-existent Son of God, who is very God, a very God, not one part of God or a third of God, but all God, became a man and lived among us. He who is eternally in nature of God brought unto himself a human nature to live among us as he lived with us. Now the mystery of the Trinity is this, that there is one God who is one in nature and yet three in persons. And the mystery of the incarnation, where the second person of the Trinity becomes a man, is that the Son, by becoming a human being, doesn't cease to be God. He doesn't relinquish any part of his divine nature, but he has brought into himself the fullness of our own humanity so that he's one person with two natures. In the Trinity, you have one nature, one God in three persons. In the incarnation, you have one person with two natures. It's kind of complex. It's confusing. You know, the early church had to think these things out and reason them through, and they had to find out how to go with it because if they weren't careful, they'd go into error. They'd go into heresy. And understand who this person was, what this meant, and how it was fulfilled. They understood that he was of one person with two natures, and yet these natures were not in conflict. That they somehow came together in such a way that they didn't compromise one another. They didn't limit and diminish one another. Jesus didn't become a superhuman by somebody being on a super energized power of the divine within him. He wasn't an emergence of the divine and the human together in one entity, but he was one person with two complete developed natures, one that was already in place, eternally coexisting as God, and now humanity being brought into himself. This is a mystery. This is something to be considered. One of the considerations is this. One of the things we can draw from this is that we human beings have been made in the image of God, and as such, we are capable, in the perfection that God intended, of being united with God, And so the Son, united into his personhood, his eternal personhood, both the nature of all that God is and all that we human beings were created to be before we were sullied by our sins, by God himself. The Chalcedonian Creed kind of explains this. So take that insert again and flip it over and let me read to you the Chalcedonian Creed. They had to address with different ideas. Some ideas that somehow there was emergence of a convergence and mingling together of God and man into one kind of solid state in which Jesus was a superhuman being or in which he had two totally separate personalities that were in a sense conflict with one another. And the Chalcedonian Creed was written in about 451. And this is what they stated. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, in other words, agreement with those things that we've been taught by the Holy Fathers of the early church. We all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. By the way, that is the consistence of man. Man has a reasonable soul and a body and that's what makes him a man of one substance at the same time with the Father as regards his Godhood 
and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, and yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change. In other words, these natures weren't confused. They weren't mingled together. There wasn't some change that was forced upon the other when Christ took in humanity into himself. It didn't change in any way, divest him of any way of his deity. Without division, without separation. It wasn't like there was this battle between the two natures roiling within the Lord Jesus. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together in one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one, the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. These things had to be thought out. They had to be considered. They had to be weighed, but they had their bearing on the gospel itself. In fact, you cannot understand and appreciate the gospel if you take away these truths or you diminish them. This is a part of what we're going to be considering. Now, when Jesus became a man, he emptied himself of the full display of his divinity. We might understand it in this way. He subliminated or laid down into his subconsciousness the exercise of certain attributes that belong to him as God alone. He set aside the exercise of his omniscience. He subliminated it into his subconsciousness. He set aside the full manifestation of his power. He didn't surrender his power. He was still the all-powerful God. He didn't surrender his omniscience. He still was the all-knowing God. He didn't surrender his omnipresence. He was still God who is omnipresent in all things, in all places. But he didn't exercise himself in the full measure of any of these things. Instead, he engaged the world during the time in which he walked upon the earth in his human nature as a man. Now, there are are times when there are flashes of his divinity that shine out from his life, but when you consider the overwhelming power of the almighty, eternal, everlasting God, it is remarkably restrained when you study the life of the Lord Jesus. Instead, Jesus experienced as a human being what it was like to learn and discover. The omniscient God, learning as a man what it's like to learn and discover. He experienced as a human pain and hunger and thirst and fatigue. You'll recall the story in which the Lord Jesus is traveling on the Sea of Galilee after a time of intensive ministry, and he's exhausted, and he's asleep in the boat, and a massive storm rises up. The wind is blowing. It's about ready to overtake the boat, and disciples have to shake him awake and say, Lord, aren't you concerned that we're going to drown? You read about in Mark chapter 4. The Lord Jesus gets up, and it says he rebuked the wind, and the waves said, be still and be at peace, or be quiet and be at peace. And there was a sudden calm over the sea that they were about ready to be drowned in. And the remarkable thing about this is that it demonstrates that nature recognizes the voice of its creator and obeys him. Yet what might be more remarkable is that before this creator stands up to command the winds and the waves, he's so exhausted as a man that he nearly sleeps right on through the storm. He has to be awoken to address it. Again, it's as a man that the Lord Jesus will confront temptation. 
The Bible says he was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. You can read that in Hebrews 4.15. And also as a human being, Jesus will face down and obey all the laws of God and he'll live a sinless life. And then as a human being, Jesus will go to the cross and die in the place of sinful people who were just like him except that they had sin and he did not. He suffered the agonies of our sin as a human being. He died as a man. He died a death that had no claim upon him because of his sinlessness. But he claimed that death for himself for our sakes. This is the Christ that the disciples walked with. This is Jesus, the Messiah. They thought he was the Messiah. They thought they were wrong at one point in time when he died and they saw him go in the grave. But this is the one they were walking with. Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one. At least that's what they hoped for. Here's the third stage. At the very end of it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord. The next stage is the stage of the God-man's exaltation, who is appointed now or declared to be the Son of God. We've already said that He is the Son of God. We begin with the Son of God, but now an appointment is made before the minds of His disciples and for all to see that He is the Son of God, the God-man, with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And here Paul is referencing not only Christ's resurrection, but his ascension into heaven and his place as king and judge over all the earth. And Christ, as we've noted, has eternally been the Son of God. But here Paul is simply stating the historical fact that in his resurrection, the Holy Spirit has powerfully removed the veil that sealed off his deity from the eyes of those who witnessed him and saw him. And in his resurrection, he is now recognized as the exalted divine son of God who had come in human flesh. Thomas, you'll remember when he sees Jesus resurrected and is invited to put his hands in the wounds of Jesus in the side of Jesus, John says that Thomas said, my Lord and my God, we can't read it without thinking that he said it. He shouted it. I can hardly read it without thinking that he fell and clapped to his knees when he said it. My Lord and my God, what a confession. So far beyond just Jesus, the anointed one. My Lord and my God. Before the disciples had come before the Lord Jesus as their rabbi and their adored teacher, but now they recognize that this is their God. In the time of this humiliation, we see Christ hungry and tired and suffering and dying, but exalted. He's established before us as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he comes before us like he came before his disciples, declaring all authority has been given unto me in earth and heaven. And we're told that after he called upon them to go into all the earth to proclaim his gospel, that they fell before him and they worshipped him. We are to do the same thing. We worship the exalted, risen Savior. We actually view his life. We may view the time of his humility, but we all view it from this side of the resurrection. We all view it from this side of his exaltation, knowing that this one is our all-powerful Savior and God. It's tempting at times for us to simply limit ourselves to thinking of the Lord Jesus as if he still is around as the one who walked upon the earth with his disciples. We place him in the clothes that he wore in Galilee. We put sandals upon his feet. We have him walk alongside of us as he expressed himself in his humiliation and humility. We actually can find comfort in thinking of him this way. But 
you'll recall how it is that John will see Jesus in the vision he had in the book of Revelation. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Revelation. John was close to the Lord Jesus. They were cousins. According to the flesh, they were cousins. John, you might be reminded that Last Supper tells us that he was seated nearest to Jesus during the Last Supper and even rested his head against him during that time. But now in the book of Revelation, John has a vision of the exalted Lord. Let me read to you verses 10 through 18. John writes this. It's a totally different vision than he had before. This is not Christ in his humiliation. This is how he stands now that he's risen again from the dead. The glorified, exalted Christ. Glorified in his divinity, but also now glorified in the humanity that he took upon himself. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined or burning in the furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, his face, was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to Hades and death. I have the keys to hell and death. This is Christ in his exaltation before one of his disciples. He's the one we come before when we pray and when we worship. He's the one who's conquered on behalf. He's the one who applies to us all the potency and power of our salvation when we believe and trust in him. And now it's this one that the gospel is all about. This one who was the preexistent eternal God, this one who came and took on flesh and experienced our sin, this one who has conquered our sin and risen and will one day come to judge the earth in majesty and power and is now adored by the heavenly angels. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what Paul will turn to speak of it. He says it's the gospel of God, but after this, he'll call it the gospel of Jesus Christ is his good news. And in coming to the gospel, in coming to the gospel, In a sense, you have to come to him through these stages. As the Christ or as the Son, as Jesus, the one who's come, as our Lord. Let's look at this very quickly, these stages of coming to him. And this will be, in a sense, our application. You'll need to come before God, the holy and triune God of all creation. The God who made you and made you for himself. The God whose glory you have fallen short of because of your sin. The God who will bring you into account who is holy and just in all his ways and must address your sins. But God who loves you still and desires to bring you back into himself. It's before this God that you have to 
see your own failing and your own sin and your own need. To come into the gospel, you have to come before this eternal God. Next, you'll need to come before God as He draws near to you as the Savior, as Jesus the Christ, as the God who took into Himself your humanity, as the one who can sympathize with you in all your trials and temptations, as the one who knows your sorrows and your weaknesses, as the one who will love you so much that he'll step into your sins and suffer the justice and punishment that they deserve in your place. There is this wonderful truth that's found. If this is not true, if this wasn't necessary, Christ would not have been born and entered into this world as a man. He would not have gone through the incarnation. The eternal son would have remained the eternal son apart from ever engaging us in this way. But in the incarnation, we understand he came to die in our place for our sins. The substitutionary sacrifice is illustrated in a way throughout human history. We see examples of individuals who bring forward in their own life a stunning example of this kind of substitution where they die for another and they sacrifice their love for another. Jesus said, greater love has no man that delays down his life for his friend. Paul reminds us that Christ commends his love for us and that while we were yet enemies, he died for us. But that substitution, that sacrifice is illustrated in different occasions. I was a number of years ago in Auschwitz and I saw the cell where Father Maximilian Kolb and 10 others were starved to death and died. A man had escaped the concentration camp. The Nazi commander wanted to make a lesson to everyone else of what would take place if one man escaped and so that they wouldn't let anybody do that again. And so he determined that there would be 10 prisoners that would be taken among those in the camp and that they would be put in a dungeon or in a, a cell in the basement of the facility that they were at and they'd be starved to death. And so 10 men were randomly picked and one of the men cried out, my wife and my children. And so Kolb stepped forward and asked to take his place. And he did. And he died for that man. As a result, Frank Gajanesic survived and returned to his wife. And it's a wonderful illustration of vicarious sacrifice for another. It's a wonderful illustration of the vicarious sacrifice that Christ made when he died in our place for our sins. But the illustration only goes so far. As an act of love and sacrifice, it's a beautiful example. But it's no illustration of righteousness and justice. What happened to Kolb and the nine others was unjust and it was evil. If God had determined that the only way that you could go free from your sins was to set his just judgment down upon a sinless, innocent human being in your place, God would be as unjust as that Nazi camp commander. No. Your sins in this case were serious and required the punishment from God to be just. But for the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins to not only be an act of love, but an act of justice and righteousness, something more had to take place. God himself must become a man. God himself must take in the nature of that man the pursuit of living a sinless and holy life. God himself must then, as a man in that human nature, take upon himself the punishment that rightly should have come upon us. That is love. 
And that is righteous altogether. And it is the only way God could have redeemed us from our sins. And that's what God did in Jesus Christ. That's what happened in that moment. And this is the gospel we must come to. That's the end of stage two. But he conquers. He bears our sins. He rises victorious. He absorbs in himself the hell we deserve and, and puts the flame out. And rises to save and redeem all those who believe and trust in him. And now when you meet him, you meet him as the conquering, risen, all-powerful Lord who has conquered and ascended into his might of eternal glory. And there's stage three. You bow at his feet and you worship and you glorify him and you honor him who so condescended in order to rise on your behalf. And you see that when he rose, he did not discard his humanity. This is one of the great mysteries. Christ, who is eternally God by nature, one with God throughout all eternity, took into himself human nature, died in that human nature, rose again, glorified in that human nature, and he'll never take it off. And in that moment, he gave an expression of what he plans for you and I. He glorified our future and said, this is what I'll make of you. This is what I'll bring you into. If you'll trust me and you'll believe in me, I'll only forgive you of your sins. I'll not only make a way for you to be reconciled to me, but you will be united with me, co-heirs with me, glorified with me. We'll be like him when he comes because we'll see him as he is. By so doing, Christ lives out forever the promise of the glory which he will one day bring all who believe in him into. Our bodies will be transformed into glory like unto his body. And we shall be with him and in him forever and ever. Paul ends, our Lord, our Lord, forever with our Lord. That's the gospel. That's the gospel Paul is going to write about. That's the gospel Paul is going to begin to explain and magnify. That's the gospel that should capture our heart. That's the gospel that should hold us bound in worship of him. That's the gospel that should change the way we approach our world. Christ came into history to bring this story to bear. We should live out our history, the desire to bring that story to bear to others. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. My Jesus, what a wonder you are. What an unfathomable mystery. What condescension beyond all knowing. What nearness to me. Not simply to touch and draw near in some way, but to enter into my experience. To take into yourself myself. Take into yourself my sin and there. They're covered in your righteousness. They bear its punishment. And they bring to me your glory. How joyous this news is to you. Oh God, may it be glad to me. And Lord, may I never presumptively come before you. Dear Jesus, let me always see in you the eternal God. Holy Spirit, let me see 
the deep, profound love of my Savior and reaching to me and becoming like me. Oh, again, grant that my eyes might live in the hope and the promise of his resurrection and exaltation. And the promise simply to be to be at his feet and to worship and glorify him throughout all ages. Oh, that will be glory for me. Lord, such a wonderful gospel. Such a profound mystery. What is the application? Worship, worship, worship. Be captivated by the desire to be agents of that good news to all that would hear us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.